Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Monday, June the 14th, 2021. This is episode 2892 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday, we have a topic roundtable. Uh, there are some cool things coming in uh, the few, next few weeks and will become more of a regular thing. Uh, I am going back long, 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 long time ago. I was running a couple interview shows a week, and I went back to doing one. And at this point, as I am trying to retool things and make my life a little bit easier, and I've gone to a four-day work week, I'm also going back to two interviews a week as long as we can find the high-quality, interesting guests. And uh, I put out a call recently for guests. It's still open. I'd love to have you as a guest on the show. However, I've also just not responded to some. If I didn't respond to you and you don't sound like the person I'm about to describe, feel free to try again. Um, but I did get, this time around, a whole bunch of people that when I look at their websites, they look like sleazy 1970, back of the book, info marketer types, kind of quirky, like long sales copy, I'll teach you how to be super special. Not happening. And I'll just say that authors... You better come up with a compelling topic beyond, I have a book to talk about. I'm just saying, um, I like to give my guests a great branding experience. I like my guests if they have something to market or sell to get great exposure. And if somebody is a book author, I like them to sell lots of books. I have no problem with that. I am a free market anarcho-capitalist. You know that. But I, I don't think the audience wants to tune in for an hour to hear about your book, but not really hear about your book because you're afraid they won't buy it. So we need to have things to talk about. Um, if you look at like the interviews that Joe Rogan did with uh, Randall Carlson, and I'm trying to think of the other guy's name right now, it's, name's escaping me, I'm sure both of those guys sold the shit out of their books from those interviews. They barely mentioned them, and it was a three-hour interview. So make sure you fill out the guest form. Make sure you give me a good pitch on a good, interesting topic. I'm more interested in a good, interesting topic than your credentials or something like that. If I think a person can educate, inform, and entertain this audience, I'll bring them on. Um on that, I have like a really cool interview coming for you tomorrow, a returning guest. He's an interesting guy. If you guys remember Joseph Simcox, if you, if you don't remember him, go look up Simcox. Spelled just like it sounds, S-I-M-C-O-X in our search bar and just listen to a couple seconds of that show uh, once I get him on past the housekeeping and you'll see, yeah, you're in, you're in for a, a high-powered, interesting uh, thing. I he's a plant guy. Though we're not really talking specifically about plants tomorrow only. Um, but he's just like on, like on all the time on, like, like kind of nutty professor on in a good way. But I was like, is that like, is that like a stage personality or is that a all the time person? I reached out to Jeff Lawton, uh, cause he knows uh, Joseph fairly well and he told me, yeah, that's, that's, that's him. So you're in for some high energy tomorrow. We've got another cool interview on Wednesday uh, coming up this week. I have um, um, Kingsley Edwards from uh, quote uh, quote Kingsley Edwards from Float F L O T E dot A P P Float dot App uh, will be on uh, on Wednesday. And man, Float 
is about to revolutionize social media. The stuff that they're planning on releasing by August is earth-shattering, groundbreaking, possibly Twitter-killing long-term. I'm not kidding. Uh, they have their own token coming. You're going to be able to earn float tokens. Instead of directly mining them, you're going to be able to earn them by activity on float itself. Uh, all kinds of tech additions coming. If you have questions, like if you've been paying attention to what's going on with float 2.0, And you have questions you would like me to make sure I ask Kingsley, get them to me. He's promised to give us as much time as uh, we need to hear from him. So I am jagged on that. Some other great stuff coming this week. But what are we going to talk about today? I have a great quote from Abraham Lincoln. And I know there's some people out there that don't really care for Abraham Lincoln. There's certainly some things I don't care for. If you want to ask me the, the president that probably grew the power of the federal government by the greatest relative to the time that it happened in the history of all 46 presidents of the United States, it would be Lincoln. I'm not a fan of that. But, man, the, this quote, this quote, holy shit, it should scare the shit out of you when you look at what's going on in the school system today. A lot of you would be like, Lincoln said that? Yep, Lincoln said it. We'll tell you what it is in just a minute. Then I have an interview you should really listen to about the COVID vaccine and a response I got when I reached out to the speaker. And I've decided I'm actually just going to play the interview for you. It's about five minutes long. It's one of these things where, man, I wish the man had longer to talk. So I reached out to him and said, hey, I got this podcast. About a quarter million people per episode listen to it. I'll give you as much time as you want. And the response that came back sounds to me like he's being viciously, viciously attacked. It's about spike proteins. This guy's a Ph.D. He sounds like an honest scientist following science, and that just cannot be tolerated today. This will scare you a bit, I think. Then um, remember I said that lumber prices would crash and don't get stupid about it right now? Yeah, it's coming. It's kind of already started. And everything's going to go boom, glut, bust during this period of flux. And I'm going to tell you again why that's going to happen and why unless you need something, if it's elevated in price right now, don't buy it. Unless you have to have it, don't buy it and only buy what you have to have. Now, if it's something, yeah, we'll get to it when we get to it. Next, uh, is it safe? Is, or there, is there a way to make sure that it's safe? to dehydrate and store meat. Is there a botulism risk at all? Not really. Well, that's an easy one. Uh, what really happened with the FBI recovering Bitcoin from the Colonial Pipeline hack? It is logical, and to me, it's also bizarre. It is bizarre. And thanks to Jake Robinson, who can be a pain in the butt at times, but this was a great find, and it wasn't really an article directly about it. It was just in it. It was about the FUD and the uh, price of Bitcoin going down, even when it doesn't make any sense, etc. Um, and, and some other people are fairly technically astute, reached out to me and, and told me similar things. But this really drives home what happened and how bizarre it is. How absolutely bizarre the whole thing is. Um, what about home prices? Right now... BlackRock, as an investment firm, is getting a lot of press, but there's other companies doing the same thing. They're buying up, sight unseen, houses in desirable neighborhoods. I'm going to say what's really going on there. What's really going on there. And it's not a surprise at all to those of you that understand how our banking system works. And then why the El Salvador Bitcoin news? If you haven't heard this yet, the president of El Salvador uh, worked with uh, the founder of Strike, They Together, they put together a bill. He sent it to his Congress. They approved it, and he signed it. It's effective immediately, making Bitcoin legal tender in El Salvador. I'm going to tell you why that's bigger than you think it is. I'm also going to tell you why the fact that El Salvador says they're going to use geothermal energy tied into volcanoes is not crazy at all. 
and why it makes perfect sense and why it's being mischaracterized, of course, if that's insane. You can't do that. You can't plug into a volcano. They're not going to plug into a volcano. They're going to use geothermal energy. They're just going to develop the geothermal energy close to volcanic activity where you don't have to go so deep to get to the heat. This makes perfect sense, and it fits perfectly with something Michael Saylor said over three months ago when he was asked about the energy quote-unquote problem with Bitcoin. And then I have just a thought on social distancing at the G7 meeting. I don't care how many gaffes Biden made. made. I don't care what they're saying. I just care about two images that I've put in the notes for you to take a look at today. And it says everything about how you're being played. And I would tell you that if you look at these images and you don't understand how the media has been playing all of us with this COVID nonsense, then there's probably no hope for you. And I bet you don't listen to the show anyway. And I just want to finish up with a thought. You are either totally screwed or all is well with everything that's going on in the world today. And it's all about how you choose to handle things for yourself. All right. With that, before we get into everything today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Wealth Steading Podcast with John Pugliano. If you want somebody that will break down complicated wealth building ideas, investment terminology, and what's going on for real in the markets in a way that makes perfect sense, because the guy always makes perfect sense, you want to check out John Pugliano at the Wealth Steading Podcast. John's been an investment advisor for years. He's been a supporter to the TSP community for years. He is just exceptional at spotting opportunities before everybody else does. And that's how you make money. You want to know more about that, you got to check out his podcast, the Wealth Steading Podcast at wealthsteadingpodcast.com. Next of the day, KnifeKits.com. These guys have been with us like forever in a day. We signed KnifeKits.com as a sponsor in 2009. It is now 2021 podcasting sponsorship that's lasted that long. They're a great company. When we vetted them as a sponsor, they, they just, it wasn't even a question about whether they're saying yes or not. We went to all the blade forums, all the places like that, all the places where people buy form from them. There was nothing but good things said about them. They've been an exceptional sponsor. I have some great sponsors that what I say is when I have a complaint, uh, I get in touch with them and they always take care of people. Right. Knife kits. I, they might be the only sponsor I have that I can say this. I have never had a complaint about knife kits. And what is it now? 12 years, 12 years, and I've never had a complaint. By the way, TSP is fixing to turn 20, I'm sorry, wow, I got ahead of myself there, 13 years old. We'll be 13 years old six days from now. It'll happen on a weekend. We won't be on air on the day that it happens. Maybe we'll celebrate it on Monday when we come back next week. Uh, anyway, with the sponsor stuff knocked out, let's go to this quote by Abraham Lincoln. And it should, if you've, if you've paid attention at all to what's going on in our education system today, and I'm going to say something. The whole 1619 Project thing is a tiny, microscopic speck on the ass of a giant wildebeest, and the wildebeest is the problem. The speck on the ass is part of the problem. The speck is part of the wildebeest. But the speck is just a speck. The corruption and the brainwashing in our education system so goes beyond the 1619 Project and even the wokeness. All of it together, the programming is Absolutely horrific in the context of this quote by former President Abraham Lincoln. The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. 
The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. And I know you're thinking it already is. No, it's not. It's coming, though. It's coming, and a lot of you guys like me, you're almost 50, you're a little over 50, a little under 50, somewhere in that range. That'll be when you're in your, like, mid-60s, when they'll really take over. I hope you're building stability into your life, because that generation, when they take over the government, and they will, not if they do, they will, because that's what, that's what will be there. That's, see, what Lincoln's saying here is when you when you turn a full generation over, the reason that they control the political landscape is because that's who's there to do it. That's who's there to do it. Because remember, it's the politicians don't really control things. The people that pay the bills do. The lobbyists, the giant firms, and the banks. But it's even worse. Because the politicians do exert some control. There is so much in the political landscape that is going to change as far as the heads on top of the brainless bodies, right, that, that make up our Congress and our Senate. Our Senate and our Congress are old. And even the ones that don't retire, they're going to die. Leaving people like, you know, the AOCs of the world to be the leadership of the parties. Oh, you don't think it's true? Oh, you wait. There'll be a day when AOC will be the Nancy Pelosi of the Democrat Party, and she'll have even crazier people she's trying to keep a lid on coming in underneath her. It may not be AOC. There'll be somebody with that philosophy. She's pretty stupid. I mean, she's more like a future Maxine Waters. I'm just saying, really. Anyway, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. Okay, so I just found this guy today, and he is a Ph.D. researcher. He has over 50 studies published in PubMed. His name is uh, Dr. Byron Brindle, and he is Canadian. And he gave an interview a little over five minutes long. I have it published on my Odyssey because it's being taken down and disappearing from other platforms. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and play it for you. This is about why we're having bleeding and cardiovascular events in people who've received the COVID vaccine and how the spike protein relates to that. Let's bring in Dr. Byron Bridal. He's an associate professor of viral immunology at the University of Guelph. Doctor, you've been very, um, you know, uh, very open um, on this whole issue. And, and, you know, you're not an anti-vaxxer by any stretch. But what do you think about this inflammation in the heart? And, and is, is it an actual threat? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Alex. Uh, yeah, as you said, I'm very much pro-vaccine, but always making sure that the science is done properly and that we follow the science carefully before going into uh, you know public rollout of vaccines. Um, I, I hope you run, let me run with this a little bit, Alex. I'll, I'll provide. I, I, I can. I, I, I'll forewarn you and your, your listeners that um, the story I'm about to tell is is a bit of a scary one. Um, this is cutting-edge science. Uh, there's a couple of key um, pieces of scientific information that have become privy to just within the past few days that has uh, made the final link. Uh, to, so we understand now, myself and some key co international collaborators, we understand exactly why these problems are happening and, and many others associated with these vaccines. And the story is a bit of a scary one. So just to brace you for this, but I'm going to walk you through this. The, the science that, that I'm going to be talking about. Um, I don't have the time here to describe exactly the scientific data, but let me assure you that everything that I'm stating here, or that I'm going to state right now, is completely backed up by peer-reviewed, 
scientific publications in uh, well-known and uh, well-respected scientific journals. I have all of this information uh, in hand. I'm in the process of mildly trying to put it all into uh, a, a document that I can ho hopefully circulate widely. So your listeners are going to be the first to hear the public release of this conclusion. And I'll, I can Sounds back it up with science. <laughs> so this is what it is. The SARS coronavirus 2 has a spike protein on its surface. That spike protein is what it allows it to infect our bodies. That is why we've been using the spike protein in our vaccines. The vaccines we're using get our cells in our body to manufacture that protein. If we can mount an immune response against that protein, in theory, we, we can prevent this virus from infecting the body. That's the theory behind the vaccine. However, when studying the disease, severe COVID-19, everything that you've just described, heart problems, lots of problems with the cardiovascular system, bleeding and clotting is all associated with severe COVID-19. And looking and, and doing that research, what has been discovered by a scientific community is the spike protein on its own is almost entirely responsible for the damage to the cardiovascular system if it gets into circulation. Indeed, if you inject the, the purified spike protein into the blood of research animals, they get all kinds of damage to the cardiovascular system. It can cross the blood-brain barrier and cause damage to the brain. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem too concerning because we're injecting these vaccines into the shoulder muscle. The assumption, all up until now, has been that these vaccines behave like all of our traditional vaccines, that they don't go anywhere other than the injection site. So they stay in our shoulder. Some of the protein will go to the local draining lymph node in order to activate the immune system. However, th this is where the cutting-edge science has come in, this, and this is where it gets scary. Um, through a request for uh, information, from the Japanese regulatory agency, myself and several international collaborators have been able to get access to what's called a biodistribution study. It's the first time ever that uh, scientists have been privy to seeing where these messenger RNA vaccines go after vaccination. In other words, is it a safe assumption that it stays in the shoulder muscle? The short answer is absolutely not. It's uh, very disconcerting. The spike protein gets into the blood, circulates through the blood in individuals uh, over several days post-vaccination. It accumulates, once it gets in the blood, it accumulates in a number of tissues such as the spleen, the bone marrow, uh, the liver, the adrenal glands. Uh, one that's of particular concern for me is uh, it accumulates at quite high concentrations in the ovaries. And, um, and then also a publication that was just accepted for uh, a, a scientific paper, just accepted for publication, uh, that, that backs this up, looked at 13 uh, young healthcare workers that had received the Moderna vaccine, which is the other messenger RNA-based vaccine we have in Canada, and they, they confirmed this. They found the spike protein in circulation, so in the blood of 11 of those 13 healthcare workers that had received the vaccine. Uh, what this means is, so we have known for a long time that the spike protein is a pathogenic protein. It is a toxin. It can cause damage in our body if it gets into circulation. Now we have clear-cut evidence that the vaccines that make our bodies, or the muscles, or the cells in our, in our deltoid muscles, right, manufacture this protein. The vaccine itself plus the protein gets into blood circulation. When in circulation, the spike protein can bind to the receptors that are on our platelets and the cells that line our blood vessels. When that happens, it can do one of two things. It can either cause platelets to clump, and that can lead to clotting. That's exactly why we've been seeing clotting disorders associated with these vaccines. It can also lead to bleeding. 
And of course, the heart's involved. It's part, a key part of the cardiovascular mm. system. That's why we're seeing heart problems. The protein, it can also cross the blood-brain barrier and cause neurological damage. That's why also in the fatal cases of blood clots, many times it's seen in the brain. And uh, also of concern is um, there's also evidence of a, of a study. This has not yet been accepted for publication yet, this one. They were trying to show that the antibodies from the vaccine get transferred through breast milk. And the idea was this may be a good thing because it prefer, would confer some passive protection to babies. However, what they found inadvertently was that the, the uh, vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines, actually get transferred through the breast milk. So it's delivering the vaccine vector itself uh, into infants that are breastfeeding. Also, with this, now we know the spike protein gets into circulation. Any proteins in the blood will get concentrated in breast milk. Looking into the adverse event database in the United States, we have found evidence of suckling infants experiencing bleeding disorders in the gastrointestinal tract. So, okay, let me pause you there because I've only got about 45 seconds left. I mean, the bottom line, sure, this sure. will scare a lot of people. I'll, I'll, I'll this wrap will it up. freak this a lot of people out. This, yeah. this message, yes. Yeah. So, so this has implications for blood donation. Right now, Canadian Blood, mm-hmm. Canadian blood Services is saying people that who have been vaccinated can donate. We don't want transfer of these uh, pathogenic spike proteins to fragile patients who are being tra- uh, transfused with that blood. This has implications for uh, infants that are suckling. And this this has serious implications for people for whom SARS coronavirus 2 is not a high risk pathogen and that includes all of our children. In short, the conclusion is we made a big mistake. We didn't realize it until now. We thought the spike protein was a great target antigen. We never knew the spike protein itself was a toxin and was a pathogenic protein. So by vaccinating people, we are inadvertently inoculating them with a toxin. And some people, this gets into circulation. And when that happens in some people, it can cause damage, especially to the cardiovascular system. And I have many other, I don't have time, but many mm-hmm. other legitimate questions about the long-term safety, therefore, of this vaccine. Right. For example, with it accumulating in the ovaries, one of my questions is, will we be rendering young people infertile, some of them infertile? So I'll stop there. Okay. I know it's heavy-hitting. but I have, I Well, I'm up against the clock. I need like an hour when I talk to you because you, you have so much information. And, of course, you're, you're one opinion of many. But, you know, it's interesting because you have a, a different look at it. And certainly the uh, time will tell on this. But we'll have you on again um, because I always get an interesting and different perspective from you. Doctor, thank you. Uh, it was my pleasure. Take care. That is a Dr. Bridal, who a lot of you uh, like and like to hear. And again, uh, that's his findings. Again, we get lots of different medical opinions. Um, that'll scare a lot of people. But there are a lot of people already who don't trust uh, the vaccines given this. So after I listened to that, I Googled this man's name to find out who he was. Very well spoken, very articulate. And I found attack after attack after attack, after attack, up to the point that I found that somebody bought his name.com, so ByronBrindle.com, and published a bunch of information saying he's wrong and basically he's a hack and he does not care about preventing the spread of COVID-19. And then mocking him because a lot of his work is in the field of veterinary medicine. A lot of his work is in the world of human medicine. He just happens to teach for a veterinary college where he's been highly honored, by the way. And I'm going to tell you that the, the, these attacks, if this man had come out and said, the vaccine is perfectly safe and everybody should get it, they would take the same credentials that they're crapping on right now and they would say, this is yet another expert who clearly demonstrates that we're right. You should follow the science and trust the science. Again, science is not something you trust. 
And you cannot follow science when science is corrupted. You have to be able to ask questions. I sent him an email, though, because there are some questions I have. And I also felt, if you hear the way that ended, that it ended way too fast and that a person like this should be fully heard and they should have the opportunity not only to present their ideas, but you should have the opportunity to question them and have them defend their ideas. And some of these objections that people brought up, I would love to be able to ask him to explain their objections. So I sent him an email saying, hey, I heard how quick you were on there. It sounded like you had more to say. I got a quarter million people. I'd love to have you on. We're a two-time podcast of the war, uh, podcast of the year award winner. Um, we have a quarter million people that listen to us. We're in all the major syndication networks, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. For now, anyway, still. And I offer you my platform, and I will work you in. I'm booked into freaking September right now, uh, but we will we will work you in asap if you want to be on the air. This is what I got back very quickly. It says. Please accept my apologies if I cannot respond. My workload has become challenging to manage. I recently conducted a short interview on the radio. My answer to the question posted by the host was objective and founded on multiple reliant, reliable scientific sources. I was simply fulfilling my duty as an academic public servant to disseminate information when it is asked of me. Further, the host of the radio show is simply doing their job and a great one at that. Unfortunately, as a result of this media commitment, I have found myself under vicious attacks by some. A libelous website has been developed using my domain name, a false Twitter account has been created, and a public smearing campaign has been initiated. I am even experiencing some harassment in the workplace. As such, I'm unable to fill many of my regular duties. I'm sorry, but I simply cannot respond to most emails and phone calls I am receiving. Such are the times for some academic public servants. For those interested in the scientific underpinnings of my comments in the radio interview, please visit CanadianCovidReliance.org for a copy of the short report that includes key references. A more comprehensive report is being written and will be made available at that site to those who join the emailing list in the near future. For those seeking services as an expert witness for court cases, I might be able to consider helping if a report would not be due for six weeks. Any sooner I cannot help. I will not be accepting any new media engagements at this time. You tell me if that doesn't sound like somebody was scared and shutting their mouth. You tell me that's not what happened. Now, look, guys, I'm not saying everything this guy says is right, but I am saying when you get the full court press this fast, because there's plenty of other doctors who have said similar things, but not quite as well put, not quite as well sourced, and they've been shit on, but this didn't happen to them. They didn't have mock websites in their name made. They didn't have fake social media accounts made. They didn't have these types of smear campaigns conducted this quickly and this viciously. This is not a guy who's made his career being anti-vaccine. This is not a guy who's been speaking out about COVID since the very beginning. This is a guy who does research that followed the science and was immediately shit on and attacked. You know what that tells me? He's freaking legit. He's freaking legit, and I am pissed. I am pissed that he has been pushed into a point where he's not speaking out anymore. We need to hear from people like this. I'm going to go to this website, and I've already started to consume some of the information. I'll become as informed as I can. But no one doing that can be as informed as someone with the true credentials, the time, and the research to speak on this. We need scientists and professionals and doctors speaking up about these things. 
I, 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 am, I am dumbfounded. Do people buy into this at this point? It's the same people telling you, this guy's wrong. This just doesn't happen. Oh, when you get injected with the spike proteins, they just attach to that spot in your body and they just stay there. They don't move throughout your body. They don't do that. You're listening to the same person that told you, well, there's, there's no possibility that the virus was released from a laboratory. It's not possible. That's what you were told. The same people that told you it wasn't, not that it didn't happen, that it was impossible that it happened, are now telling you you can't trust the word this man's saying. A man whose reputation was stellar until he dared say something to go against the establishment. It sickens me. If you know anyone, talking to the whole audience here, if you know anyone that can speak to this articulately the way this man did, I want to talk to him. I'll put him on on a Monday. I'll do an extra show. I will get them worked in. We need to talk about this. We need to understand this. And and, and the, the objections, the objections need, need to not be conducted one side. The objections need to be presented to the person that can articulately respond to them and either do so adequately or inadequately. I'm sick of people being silenced. I'm sick of it. And I'm sick of the cowards on the other side. So if you know somebody that says this guy's a quack, let him come on. Let him talk to me. I'd much prefer to get somebody like this to counter that, but come stand up against a redneck hippie duck, uh, podcasting duck farmer. I'm sick of it. I, I am fed up with this idea that the way that you defend a scientific principle is ad hominem attack on anybody that dissents. I'm fed up. I'm fed up, and I'll tell you who does this. Cowards who seek control. Because they don't have the ability to actually control other people through strength, so they do it through mob attacks. They do it through brainwashing. They do it through mind control. This is freaking nonsense. I was simply fulfilling my duty as an academic public servant. Man should not even have to say that. You know what? If somebody stands up and says these things articulately and well, and you disagree, you pussy-ass people that call yourself scientists, stand up, debate them in the public forum. Don't attack their reputation. Don't take a guy with over 50 peer-reviewed studies, and all of a sudden he's a scumbag that doesn't know what he's talking about, he's just a veterinarian. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's un and it's, what, what pisses me off more than it's done is how easily it works. How easily it works. Anyway, let's move on. Um, I found this little one here interesting. Um, came from Kevin. Kevin said, certainly you've seen this by now. I've been holding off on rebuilding a downright broken deck. Damn you for helping me save money again, you big jerk. And it's a link to an article on Zero Hedge. There's, it's all over mainstream media now. Basically, this week, lumber prices experienced, or last week now, lumber prices experienced a record drop in price. The largest drop in lumber prices over a single week ever. And it won't keep going now, right away. Uh, not all the way back down to where it was. And it won't be a one-way track downward, but you're beginning to see the end of that cycle. It'll be something else next. Like I said, the everything shortage will come in waves, waves and phases. 
Some things will correct quicker than others, and some things will take longer to correct than others. And it will be directly proportional to, is there an actual shortage of the raw material, in this case, trees? And there isn't. There isn't a shortage of trees. So the supply line corrections at the milling, production, and shipping facilities, which are still understaffed, yet not that understaffed. And it's also affected by a massive demand influx because, well, there's people like, if I can't afford to buy a house, I'm going to build one. That's created shortages across the whole building trades, roofing, all that shit's short. right? But in the end, there's plenty of trees. There's plenty of timberland that's at harvest stage. There's plenty of mills. There's no, we are not getting our, our yellow pine number two lumber from frickin' China. Okay? So how long, and if we are getting something from another country and there's a shortage in it, that creates a different dynamic to how long the phase plays out. And if the shortage is in something that we have to physically grow, so if our problem with the soybean shortage is not that there's not a shit ton of soybeans sitting in silos, and just waiting to be processed, but it's actually there's a shortage in the commodity itself, and there is, and it takes at least one growing season to get another harvest, and other countries are banning exports on that commodity, it will take longer for that cycle to complete. And anything where the underlying raw material is in shortage itself will take longer. And you're going to be able to see all of these coming, you're going to see them all happen, And if you just remember the pattern I just gave you, you'll be able to say this is short, medium, or long duration. It's not like some masterful, you know, prognostication, Jack Spirkadamus. Some people say that's the name. Somebody gave me that name back in, I think Ron Hood gave me that name in like 2009. Spirkadamus, man. Um, it really isn't that. It's just pattern recognition. It really is. It's just pattern recognition. Anyway, um, Next one that I have for you guys today. Uh, I can't pronounce this person's name, so I'm not going to butcher it. Let's call them S. S says, hi there. I was wondering if you have an episode on the proper way to dehydrate and store meat. I know botulism is possible when canning low-acid foods. Is it also possible when storing dehydrated meats? I would very much appreciate guidance in this area. Thank you. You, you, you can... You can. It's highly unlikely, but if you really did everything that you could to make botulism happen with a piece of dehydrated meat, you could make it happen. You'd have to break all the rules. So let's talk about what what are the two things botulism needs to grow. Because botulism is an organism, and botulism itself is not toxic. Stop, don't flip out, let me finish. As the bacteria multiply, their byproduct is one of the most lethal substances known to man. But walking around and breathing, you are breathing in botulism. It is literally everywhere. That's why the risk is inherent in the first place. Botulism needs two things to start reproducing and making its toxic goo. It needs Moisture and a no oxygen environment. So no O2 and no O2 and has to have moisture. We dehydrate meat, we don't have moisture. The problem could come if we don't fully dehydrate meat and then we do something like vacuum seal it so we have moisture 
in the meat, and we're storing that. Now, given that a lot of methods of dehydrating meat also use a lot of salt, that even makes that less likely. But the reality is we don't really need to vacuum seal our meat. But I want you to think about the fact that it's done all the time with beef jerky. Again, but you have a very high salt situation that you're dealing with, with with beef jerky. So are we using salted meat or not? That could have some effect on it. But man has been dehydrating meat both with and without salt for as long as man's understood that meat can dehydrate. And I have never heard in all my years and in 13 years specifically in the preparedness industry, I have never heard of a single case of botulism that came from dehydrated meat. It, again, it's almost impossible because by removing the moisture, we're removing one of the two things that botulism needs to, to reproduce. So how do we dehydrate meat? What are you dehydrating? And what are you looking for from it? And so what I've learned, for instance, is if you want to dehydrate ground meat for like rehydrating and, and, and using like on a trail trail food or something like that, Actually, the best way to do that is to cook it first and to do so with breadcrumbs. And I'll see if I can find the article I read years ago by a website I think it was called Backpacking Chef about this. And the first time he tried it, it was like even when you rehydrate, it was like trying to eat BBs. But by adding the breadcrumbs, they pulled in enough moisture to fully help rehydrate it and soften the beef. Mostly... Meat is dehydrated simply by slicing it thinly and either using a dehydrator or dehydrating in the sun in a dry climate. You can also do things like biltong, which I've talked about extensively, and you can just look up how to make biltong, or you can make true jerky. You can also dehydrate using smoke. So you can use like a cold smoke dehydration process as well. It's, it's all inherently safe, and there is no right way to do it. Okay, there's there's... Dozens of methods of dehydration of meat that has been used over the years. A few things to think about. If the meat in question potentially could cause um, trichinosis, like pork, it shouldn't be dehydrated raw and consumed without cooking to appropriate temperature. So that's something to look at is does this meat have the potential to... Uh, transmit trichinosis or any other disease that simple dehydration alone, you know, will not take care of. Now, for all of the fear of eating undercooked beef, have you ever heard of beef tartare? You know what that is? It's raw beef. People eat it all the time. Beef's relatively safe. Um, there are some wild game meats that you really need to think about the trichinosis risk as well, and it's higher in wild game. So, for instance, bear is a potential vector of trichinosis. Wild pig, of course, would be a potential vector of trichinosis. Due to the way that pigs are fed today in our modern agricultural system, as many problems as it has, the odds that anybody is going to go to the supermarket, buy conventional pork, and get trichinosis are slim to extremely none, right? I mean, it's just not there. Wild pork, because the way trichinosis is passed from one species to another is consumption of the other thing. Wild pigs will eat anything. Bears will eat anything. There are two vectors of that. So I wouldn't go uh, dehydrating the meat of either raw and then using it without cooking it. You can dehydrate it and then you can cook with it. And if you you know take it up to 145 degrees for I believe it's at least 10 minutes, any potential risk to trichinosis is just gone. Right? It, it destroys it. 
but it's not a complicated thing. It's not something that you should be afraid of. And my favorite way to dehydrate meat is to make biltong um, or jerky, either or. And an Excalibur dehydrator is probably the best thing in the world for jerky making. Do not, one more time, do not use a dehydrator to make biltong. Uh, Air-conditioned room with a fan blowing is a good way. If you want to make a biltong box, I'm okay with that. But I think that instead of a light bulb, which uses heat, you're better off using something very small with a fan like a fan for a computer and just move air through it to keep the humidity low so that it can dehydrate. What happens, and I've tried it when you make biltong, uh, biltong is made primarily you drench the meat in vinegar and then you coat the meat with salt, coriander, and black pepper. That's traditional. That's it. That's all that goes. There's other ways you can do it, other ways you can flavor it, but that is the most traditional version. You're like, no, man, you got to have Worcestershire sauce. Well, Worcestershire sauce was invented over 150 years after biltong started being made by the Dutch boars in South Africa, so I'm pretty sure they didn't use it because it didn't exist yet. Okay. So anyway, um, just keep the humidity down, and the one thing that I say you have to be aware of and why like a box situation might work better for some people, depending on the time of year you're doing it, is I have had biltong hit by flies and ended up with maggots and biltong. And that's obviously not good. That's bad, 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 bad. So by using more of a screen box, you get the flies off. That, that, that's the only reason I would say that. And the other thing is, when I hang it in my uh, office from the ceiling, and I just do it at a time of year where flies are not an issue, uh, occasionally a dog might get high enough to pull a stick or two down. So I'm thinking about kind of making a biltong box for that. But Just have at it, man. There's tons of videos on it, and it's just not something really to be afraid of. Uh, again, this is something man has been doing for years. So uh, let's move on to the pipeline hack and, and what really happened. There's an article on In Bitcoin We Trust, and the article's called Why Bitcoin is Falling When Several South American Countries Embrace Its Revolution. And I'll talk about how big a deal that is a little bit later. But Jake sent me this email, and this one quote out of the article that I... I found to be a sufficient explanation how they got the Bitcoin back. Quote, those who have taken the time to analyze the documents can see that Bitcoin was not hacked by the FBI. No Bitcoin wallet has ever been hacked, and that is simply not possible. I'm going to say, hold on, on that one. No Bitcoin address has been hacked. If you actually get your hands on a device that the wallet is sitting on, which is kind of what happened here, uh, you can You can, even without, you know, you're basically hacking a password at that point. Uh, there's keystrokes on the devices, all kinds of information. Once the person gets the device, they may be able to hack the device that the wallet's sitting on and thereby gain access, right? So let me continue reading. No Bitcoin wallet, and I would change that to address, has ever been hacked. That is simply not possible. The dark side hackers had, listen to this, rented a cloud server on which the private keys were hosted. The FBI obtained a subpoena to seize the server and take control of it. Once they had the private keys, it was a simple matter for the FBI to recover the stolen Bitcoin. It was simply a matter of performing standard transactions on the Bitcoin network, nothing the average person couldn't do. Huh. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Dark side hackers rented a cloud server for the strategic hack of a colonial pipeline. Dark side hackers, super hackers in Russia, Putin's minions, 
that live in a private bunker under his swimming pool used a cloud server that the FBI was able to physically seize to hack colonial... What? What? This makes sense. Okay, now I understand logistically how the FBI quote-unquote recovered the Bitcoin. They took the device holding the information and used the information to take the Bitcoin. Okay, I get that. Dark side hackers rented a cloud server in a nation that the United States FBI was able to physically seize the server? But they're super hackers from Russia. Okay. I don't know what the F's going on here. But I do know, which is almost always the case inevitably with these big stories, we're not being told the truth. We are not being told the truth about this. This, to me, more and more now, I'm feeling like it's an FBI op that was blown. That it was never actually supposed to happen. They were trying to catch somebody and they effed it up. Because it's not like that never happened before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's happened so many times in so many ways. Do you know something will happen like, I don't know, a mass shooting somewhere, and it turns out that the individual that committed it was known to the FBI, and the FBI was actively working, and then, oh, gee, he just disappeared and showed up and shot a bunch of people. But we, we didn't know that was going to happen. Or some guy ends up driving a truckload of explosives that the FBI was working with to set up a sting, because, you know, if his truck didn't have real explosives in it when we arrested him, we wouldn't actually be able to say he had real explosives, so we had to give him the real explosives. And when I talked to my wife about that, she said, do they really do that? I'm like, they do it all the time with drugs, even on small scale. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, when you watch, like, cop show or something like that, and they got some guy standing out on the street that's, like, selling crack or selling, you know, selling heroin or some shit, right? And it, the guy comes up, the guy makes the buy, he hands him the dope, and he keeps selling. And then as soon as he turns the corner, they grab him and throw him in a paddy wagon, and they keep doing that. Until the paddy wagon's full, and they don't have any more paddy wagons, or word gets out that the dude selling dope is a narc. When you see that happening, they really do that. But when they do the transaction, they actually give the other party heroin or crack or whatever for real. And they have to. Because if they just put like some talca powder in a bag and said it was coke, and the guy bought it, When the case went to trial, because I tell you what, if you did that, the case would go to trial. Even a shitty public defender would be like, oh, no, we're fighting this. And you go then before a judge, and they say, well, this man purchased narcotics from our undercover officer. The defense attorney's going to say, no, bought talca powder. Well, he thought it was dope, so you lied to him, right? That's, I mean, that would be the response, but it doesn't matter. Thinking you're buying crack is not a crime. Buying crack is a crime. It's the same thing if somebody, you know, it's the same but different, man. If somebody goes into a department store, shoves a bunch of shit in their pants, like they're going to shoplift it, but never leaves the store, the store calls the police, the police kept the guy, they can try to say intent, but if he says, oh, I just didn't have my hands free and I was going to go up to the counter and pull it out of my nuts and I was going to put it on the thing and pay for it, he's going to be successful at defending himself. That's why they actually let people walk out the door before they apprehend them when they get... Right, So, like, the FBI has screwed this up over and over and over and over again. And I'm not even going to say screwed this up, 
Because humans are FBI agents, and humans make mistakes. The FBI has made mistakes when trying to conduct these, these types of things, as have other law enforcement organizations in the United States, especially at the federal level. Like Fast and Furious, remember that? Right? How did the, how did the cartels get the guns? Well, our government gave them to them so that they could sting them and arrest them, but oh, they got away. That's, I said this could possibly be a false flag, and I'm very leery of the term false flag, and I, I don't just jump into conspiracy theories either. I talked about that in Miyagi Mornings today. But um, my other possibility here is this was a sting gone bad of some sort. My gut is that's the case. Because I'm going to tell you right now, super badass Russian hackers that specifically targeted the Colonial Pipeline would have not rented a cloud server in a place that the FBI could easily go to and physically seize. And even if they did, they wouldn't store their private key on it. This doesn't, this makes sense in the how, but it makes no sense in the logistics of how anybody that is any way sophisticated would operate as a hacker. Again, I'm back to, if you're a hacker today, and you have any idea what you're doing, you're not asking for Bitcoin anyway. Additionally, I'm back to, even if this all vetted out and somehow this worked out, anybody with a brain, the second the Bitcoin got on that address, they would have moved it to a newly created address instantly. Now, what people are saying is, well, see, you can push Bitcoin through coin mixing, and to a degree you can, but that really doesn't work the way people think it does. It's not like it can't be unraveled or still tracked down, or you can't figure out which Bitcoins were the original Bitcoins. I'm sorry. Um, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. It just does not. Uh, Kevin sent me an email, and a lot of people have recently, about BlackRock coming in and buying lots of properties. And I've got an article for you. It was on Fox News about BlackRock and other investment firms buying up houses. And, well, this is, doesn't surprise me. And I've said before, in fact, I think it was the Miyagi Mornings episode where I broke down properties and said these four classes of properties are going to become very, very difficult to purchase over time. And the four classes of property that I said were going to get hungrily gobbled up were, one, small town homes, and towns just big enough to have most of the things people wanted, but just small enough to not be full of stupid. All right. The next one was homes like I have on the urban rural fringe. You're near a large city, but you're not in a suburb. You're in a state that's mostly sane, like Texas or Florida, and you kind of are out on your own. You don't have neighbors that you can spit out the window and hit on both sides. Three was traditional suburbs within free states. Think again, Florida and Texas. I'm reading my own episode. This was Miyagi Mornings episode 106. Um, and other states that didn't lose their mind completely. And then truly rural properties. What BlackRock and other investment firms are buying is the third type. Traditional upper-end suburbs in free states. Where they're doing most of their buying is Texas and Florida. Houston are buying like crazy. And they're buying upper-end properties. They're buying the properties that people that are leaving California, New York, and Michigan want to buy 
when that person doesn't want to live in small-town America. That's what they're buying. It's right off my list. So, no, I'm not surprised. Now, I think there's two things going on here. One, you have the right claiming that, like, this is what's causing all the problems in housing today, which is asinine. And then you have the leftist media, the MSNBCs, the CNNs. If you go look it up, they're literally claiming it has nothing to do with it. Like BlackRock buying up billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of property and being just one investment firm doing this has nothing to do with the housing chaos. Nothing at all. Nothing to see here. Move along. And as usual, the left and the right foot move the same being forward. This is a part of the problem. It's not the problem. It's literally being reported as this is going to reduce people to serfdom. The important thing here is that you're seeing now what people really value. That's what you're seeing. COVID is killing the dying, and I don't mean people. How many times did I say that over the last couple of years? You're seeing what people really value. People value not being told what to do. People value nice neighborhoods where bad shit doesn't happen. People value being able to have a business where homeless people don't shit at your front door and there's nothing you can do about it. People value living in cities where roving mobs are not free to burn shit to the ground. And they're breaking into these four classes. Again, the small towns, suburb type living where people are being able to move to from these big cities who now can work remotely, and many of these companies are never going back to requiring these people to be in the office. The urban-rural fringe is where people are just basically, they're doing it in two ways. There's people moving to places like where I am, where you're in states that make sense, near cities that make sense in their own, and you're on that urban-rural fringe. But there's a shitload of people in these cities, in, in, in the states that are still insane, But the insanity goes away a little bit as soon as you get two hours outside of these big cities. The small towns that are far enough away that commuting is not really a good option. There's only a limited amount of those. And they're, BlackRock and them are buying those too. They're not only active in these, these southern states. If somebody say, I looked it up, and yeah, they're in New York too. Yeah, they are. But check out the places they're buying shit. They're out in the, you know, the end of Long Island is what they're buying. All right, leave it to Beaverland out there, guys, if you've ever been. Traditional suburbs. This is what they're gated communities, HOA hell holes, but a lot of people like it. That's why so many of them exist. In Texas, you're looking at quarter million to half million dollar homes. It's probably more than that now. But that's the class of home you were looking at. Homes that were a quarter million bucks to a half million bucks a few years ago, you're probably looking more in the neighborhood of 300 to 700 right now. They're buying them up and they're buying them sight unseen. That's that's the, the real target here. The truly rural properties, somebody else is doing that. That's your Bill Gates as the world. They're buying all the farmland up. And what did I say about this? I'm reading my own notes. This is from May 24th. Reading my own notes after I de describe those properties. So how do you buy something right now without mortgaging a kidney? I will do my best, but the Cliff Notes version is patience. Just remember this is a cycle. It plays out in all sectors over and over and over. Boom, glut, bust. These investment firms don't want to own these properties forever. 
They don't. There will be a point where this reaches a fevered pitch, and they all but the most perfect properties to hold, they will begin to sell them off before the real estate crash comes. And a real estate crash is coming. When? I don't know yet. It's very difficult to tell. It's very difficult to tell. One thing that will make this cycle go longer than things like just the lumber industry is that it takes so many different things to build a new home. And all of those things are in short supply. I actually have someone in my audience who their company sells things like doorknobs, short supply. Hinges, and a lot of that stuff, either the material, it's, the, the, the product itself or the raw materials are coming out of China, which makes a longer cycle. I have companies that are doing building that are telling me they're ordering roofing material to do jobs in July of 2022, more than a year into the future. But here's also what's coming with that. This is what they're doing. So they have this one job. They're going out to bid with suppliers. They're putting in three orders with ways that they can cancel those orders at three different suppliers for the same job. So whoever fills it first, they cancel the orders on the other two. Boom, glut, bust. So this is a problem. This is the rich raking the winnings off the table. But they're going to cycle it back through. Thinking this is the end game is is very short-term checkers thinking. These these people play chess, and you need to understand that so you don't make a mistake and run out and buy something really expensive right now that you really shouldn't buy right now. You have to be patient now. There was a time over a year ago, get out, get out, get out. I said it month after month after month. If somebody got sick of me and please said, stop saying it. I've stopped saying it. I still think you should try, but I think you need to be, you should try, but you need to be sly. Okay, I mean, you got to be really careful what you do right now. You need to look for the places that have not been overinflated. If some, if some, if people right now in the area you want to buy are buying sight unseen, don't buy jack shit. It's called irrational exuberance, huge FOMO. These things cannot be supported in the long term. We have too many things coming that are going to change the dynamics across the board. We have a massive economic crash ahead of us. Make your money now and buy when the opportunity presents itself. If it's now, act, but make sure you're being smart about how you act. Don't don't buy into this, you know, really. This is like your last chance. When I told you you needed to act, it was your last chance for a while. Now, now patience. I've, I've been saying the same thing for a long time. I had said that back in May when I did the episode I'm referencing here. So El Salvador recently, as I said in the intro segment, has made Bitcoin legal tender in El Salvador. And I just want to reiterate, I've talked about this a little bit before, but I, I really need to reiterate how big a deal this is. What they mean by legal tender is you're in El Salvador, you have your little taco truck, or taco cart, and you sell your fish tacos down by the park. People come through, they buy your tacos. A lot of people pay in Bitcoin. You make $250, which is quite a bit of money in El Salvador, right, this week. 
and Bitcoin has a really good week next week, and the $250 becomes worth $350 used to pay all your bills for the month because you're taking advantage of the gain when you do so. In the United States, you would owe a hundred tax income tax on a hundred dollars because it went from two fifty to three fifty, and you sold by spending. That's how U.S. law reads. It's not Bitcoin is not currency in the United States. It's an asset. Okay, it's not money. It's an asset. That's how it is governed. Right? It doesn't matter what you think about Bitcoin being money. That's how it's governed in your country. El Salvador exactly the opposite. If I go buy a bunch of shit with money this week and something suppresses the market so the dollar's power rises and I spend my dollars, I don't pay capital gains on that because it's money. That's what El Salvador did. The big issue here is that El Salvador's official currency is the U.S. dollar. And again, Panama's about to do this. And I mean, it's not like Panama's state. No, Panama's going to do this. Like one, this is a domino, and once a domino falls, another domino falls. Panama's official currency is the Cologne. I'm sorry, the Balboa. The Balboa. But there is no Balboa. Panama's real currency is the dollar. Its official currency being the Balboa is meaningless. Trust me, I lived there for two years. I never saw a Balboa. I defy you to show me a Balboa. If you go look to try to find like a Balboa note, right? It's worth a hundred centesimos, right? Um, you'll find these. They used to have paper money. They used to have paper money for Republic of Panama under the Balboa. It was basically a U.S. dollar. But at least they had it. I never saw one in two years, a piece of paper that was a Balboa. They're like a collector's item. Now, what I saw all the time was a quarter Balboa, which is uh, a quarter. And they're made, this is so ridiculous that they even do this. They're made in the United States Mint. A quarter Balboa will go in a United States, uh, you know, go to, you go to a Coke machine and you can throw quarter Balboas in there. There's no such thing as the Balboa. It's a joke. It's a gimmick. If you go into Google and you say, well, what is the value of one Balboa against the U.S. dollar? It's one to one. In, in the words of cryptocurrency, it would be a stable coin. Right? It doesn't exist. Panama uses the dollar as well. You're talking about two nations. Did the dollars really the official currency of adopting Bitcoin as their official currency? Now, what do we know? What do we know from Gresham's law? Good money pushes out bad. So when we look at what happened with Gresham's law when they demonetized silver in the United States, everybody hoarded the silver. Right, everybody hoarded the silver, but the reason the non-silver quarters and dimes and fifty-cent pieces got used in replace is because they were still floating around everywhere. Nobody wanted to spend the silver, right? But no one was like, "Well, I really don't want the the the, the clad coins." Right? So when you went to a merchant and you bought something, they weren't like. You know, we prefer the coins that are a couple years old. Like, let's say in 67, no one was like, I don't really want the 1967 currency. You're going to see the reverse happen in these nations that are starting to take Bitcoin. Nobody's going to want to take dollars. Why would you want to take dollars? What what benefit, in a, especially in a nation like El Salvador, where almost no one has... This is the other thing you don't understand. A lot of these nations, nobody has a bank account. They can't get a bank account. So now I can have my money electronically, I can move it around, and I can protect it. 
it, I can when when Michael Saylor has a good day, I have a, a good day too, kind of. Maybe not as much, but I have a good day too. And I can put my money into different wallets, and I can move it, and I can send it to my friends, and they can send it to me, and my family in the United States who's working in the United States earning dollars and are remitting back to El Salvador can remit back in Bitcoin for free, by the way, using Strikes Network. No fees at all, none of these high fees, it's all free. And I can have that money in my hand in the form of my smart device, which even the poor people in El Salvador now have cell phones. And I'm much more protected than walking around with a wallet full of cash. Think if you couldn't have a bank account. Think if right now all your all the business you did was in, when I say cash, I mean physical cash. No checks, no bank account, no place to deposit it. You had to hold cash, pay your bills in cash. And somebody came in and said, hey, free application, free app, just download it to your device, fill out this form, instantly you have what effectively is like a bank account. You can now accept this digital currency, and by the way, you have no tax implications if you use it. What are you going to do? Mass adoption. So the next nation, after Panama, it looks like, you know, like I can tell you Panama is going to do it. Um, Guatemala is probably going to do it, but the, the nation I think is going to go next after Panama is Costa Rica. Now, Costa Rica does have its own currency in the Cologne, but... There's a lot of dollars used in Costa Rica. There is no place that you go and you're like, uh, do you take dollars? And they're like, no. That's true in a lot of the world, by the way. That's true in a lot of the world. I've actually never been to a foreign country in Central or South America, offered a merchant a dollars, and they didn't prefer it to their own money. So what happens when all these nations start you know, taking this? This is the, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. They're in a tizzy. They want a meeting with the president of El Salvador. Like, no, you can't do this. And he's like, you know what? Screw. Go screw. But here's the big thing now. So El Salvador came out and they said, we're going to use volcanic geothermal energy to mine Bitcoin. And immediately they're attacked as being lunatics or something like that. Let, let, let's just look at how geothermal energy generation works. You drill a hole deep into the ground where it's really hot. Now there is there's different types. Like usually when somebody says their house is like geothermal, they're using like this stable cool air to either cool or warm their home. They're not turning a turbine, right? They're not generating power as we normally think of it. But that is another form of geothermal energy. Where you actually get enough heat that you can generate AC or DC current. That is a thing. And you have to go pretty effing deep to get that done. And there's a limited ROI on the energy. Now, here's the other thing. Much as we, we see with all of this wind generation in Texas and Wyoming, etc., it, it takes a lot of power to move power. So you have all of these windmills way out in the middle of nowhere. And they're generating this energy because it's safe to have a windmill out there. Nobody bitches about it being ugly or making too much noise. It spins around and around out in the middle of a field in a desert. No one gives two shits. But that power doesn't go anywhere where it can be immediately utilized. It has to go through multiple substations to be taken somewhere so, that the, so there's enough grid activity to make it worth turning that windmill around with the wind. But, you know, you're in a state with 29 million people 
putting these long-haul transmission lines in is expensive, but you have a place to dump the power and people will pay for it. If you're in a place like El Salvador, developing something like geothermal power generation using volcanic heat by simply being close to the, 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 the heat and therefore not having to go as deep to, to, to get the heat makes sense except what you don't have is a highly affluent, huge population to sell the power to and do so cheaply and still make money. It's a resource that can generate massive energy that financially is not a viable way to, 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 to do so. There's no means by which to develop that energy. Now, I've tried to find the video, and if somebody could find this for me, I'd greatly appreciate it, because now all the videos, when you look for videos with Michael Saylor talking about the energy use of Bitcoin, are all in response to Elon Musk and their nonsense back and forth. This was several months before that happened. And he was on an interview. I'm sure it was a piece of an interview. And the host asked him about the energy usage. And he had two answers. And, and one was exactly this. But the first answer was, when I think about all those computers all over the place, spinning and whirring and, and using all that energy, it's beautiful. And the reason it's beautiful is those computers exist for one purpose, to secure the Bitcoin network. That's why they exist. And that makes all of it possible. And if you compare that to the energy usage of, like, to support the dollar, it's not as much as people make it out to be. But his other answer, which is exactly this, but it wasn't volcanoes. He said, all I see is some remote place, like let's say in Africa, with a waterfall, with water falling hundreds of feet, that could be easily developed, environmentally friendly, into hydroelectric power. But it makes no financial sense to develop that resource right now. But if you could use it and build a data center and have an immediate use for the power that was profitable... It makes complete sense to develop it, and entire economic centers could be developed in these places using that energy, and without something like Bitcoin, it could never happen. It's the same but different, man. So it's a volcano instead of a waterfall. It's exactly what the man said. They're going to do it. Ha ha, volcano Bitcoin miner go burr. That's what's happening here. And it's, it, it is way bigger than people realize. It is, it is a domino falling, but it's also a turning of a corner. And it's something that's long overdue, and it took courage. And my fear is, they're going to kill this guy. And that's why, if I were him, I would be on, I'd be putting the pressure on my neighbors in Panama and Guatemala and Costa Rica and Ecuador. Come on, guys. Because there's a point where when you're one, you're a target, And when you're 10, you have to be dealt with. You have to be accepted. Okay, this is a thing now. And that's what's going to tell whether this is going to make it or not. Can they get enough people to do it fast enough before we just don't go in and destabilize? I mean, don't be surprised if all of a sudden there's a real problem with what's going on in El Salvador. Like there's terrorist activity or, you know, we think that, you know, the, 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 the uh, what's it, the Taliban has rematerialized in El Salvador or whatever. Because um, this guy, he means business. There's a long history. People don't realize this. There's a long history of us destabilizing Central and South American countries. And there's a long history of dictators, yes. Many of them are because we got them put in power so that we could have an enemy. Just going to say. But there's also a long history 
of leaders in these nations really trying to do the best for their people, and it's something that doesn't make sense to the American politician, because the American politician tries to do his best for himself. And I, I'm talking high. I'm not talking, you know, a congressman or something like that. I'm talking about presidents, people with some real authority and some real clout, really trying to do what's best for their people. And I'll just say, you know, look up Confessions of an Economic Hitman on YouTube and start digging into that, and you'll see how we've handled that in the past. It's it's pretty horrific. So uh, this is great news, and it just needs to be done and pushed quickly, and it's going to change the world. Otherwise, you know, he might meet with the same fate that people that oppose the Clintons do and have an accidental suicide that somebody else did. Just, I, I really worry about the man. But the courage is impressive. It's very impressive. So next, I just want a real simple observation about the nonsense with supposed social distancing at the G7. Um, I turned, made the mistake of turning the TV on early in the morning. I think it was yesterday. And a G7 was starting, you know, or they had video of it or whatever. And all of these clowns are coming out, and they're at the beach. They got a boardwalk because, God forbid, one of these guys get, you know, a grain of sand in their $5,000 loafers that their taxpayers uh, funded for them. And uh, they're all walking out, and they all stand there, and uh, they all are, you know, like, and then they're at this blue stage in this other location, and they're all six feet apart, dutifully social distancing. And I said to my wife, you know, this is bullshit, and, you know, Boris Johnson and Kevin Trudeau come up to each other and they look at each other and they bump elbows and shit, you know, because they don't shake hands because that's bad. And somebody, you know, kind of thought like I did, I guess, and they got some of these pictures and uh, they've got, you know, the elbow bumps going on. And then the same people and groups of the same people, you know, a few minutes later at a function and they're like, they got their hands on each other's backs and they're touching each other and stuff like that. They got the one where they're all on the blue stage, and the Queen of England is in the center. You know, she's in the center of this. They're all social distanced. And then 30 minutes later, they got this picture. They're all hanging out. Prince Charles there, Boris Johnson's there, the Queen's there. She's a thousand years old. She's at high risk, whatever. They're all unmasked. They're all right next to each other. I know some people see this and they get outraged. I just go, of course. I just go, of course. These pictures, the reason I even bothered to bring them up today, the reason I put them in the show notes so you can look at them, is a perfect explanation of the last year and a half. This is exactly what's been done to you for a year and a half in real... A picture's worth a thousand words. And I want you, if you have any reservations now about just going back to living your life, I want you to look at those pictures, and I want you to realize these are the people that are like, oh, man. You know, Biden, Biden's riding a bicycle in North Carolina outside with a mask on two weeks ago at his wife's birthday. And here he is, maskless, and they're holding hands, and they love each other. It's it's all bullshit. Please understand it. And I really think if you don't get that yet, you're never going to get it. And that's what I want to kind of end with. Right now... In, in the liberty movement, there's a very reactionary component to this. The world's ending, we have to fight back. And people think they're fighting back by yelling and screaming and ranting. People think they're fighting back by uh, a lot of things that people think they're doing. They're not actually doing anything. This is the way the world really is right now. 
You're either totally screwed or everything's fine. And I don't mean in the blind sheeple way where the sheeple are like, everything's fine while their house is on fire. I don't mean that. I mean, if you're awake, it's literally the choice you have. The world has always been a flaming disaster. These people that, are, that seek power have always sought to increase their power, and they're always going to. There is a mental switch that you make. I am going to be aware of this nonsense. I am going to look at this nonsense, and I'm going to see the opportunity this nonsense presents to me, and I'm going to capitalize on it. Or I'm going to be reactionary and afraid of this nonsense, and I'm going to point out all of the bad things all of the time, and I'm not going to focus on solutions at all. And I'm going to screech and holler and yell and think the orange man can come back and save us or whatever. And that is a that is a decision. It is less about the logistics of doing things or not doing things. It's more about a mental choice. Because as soon as you say to yourself, I'm going to capitalize on this. I'm going to maintain my freedom. I'm going to do what I want. And whatever it takes to be able to do what I want, I'm going to do that so that I can keep doing what I want. You challenge your mind. I always talk about the mental computer. You challenge your mind, and your mind says, okay, this is a problem worthy of my attention. And even when you're apparently doing nothing, when you're sleeping and dreaming, and you have weird dreams that don't seem to make any sense, that's actually your mind working on the problem you gave it. And it's gonna, you're, you're going to end up figuring things out, and you won't even draw a correlation between the thought you had yesterday and the solution you had today, but they are connected. That's how the mind works. Conversely, when you basically say we're screwed, your mind goes, oh, okay. I need to figure out how to be comfortable while I get screwed. That choice is everything right now. You cannot fight the mega shifts that are occurring in the world. You cannot stop them. It's like being in a millstone, in an old-fashioned stone mill, and there's Clydesdales turning that mill, and you're going to fight the stone. You can't do it. It's like fighting a tidal wave. You can't do it. you got to figure out how to advance your goals in your life in spite of it. We're not going to reset it. We're not going to put it back. We're not going to make it go away. It will change. It will fragment. A lot of things that they want to accomplish, they will fail at. A lot of things they want to accomplish, they will accomplish. And a lot of things that they want to accomplish, they will partially accomplish. There will be blowback. It's a pendulum. It will swing. Right now it looks like the, the lunatics are running the asylum. Don't worry. It's the left-wing lunatics running the asylum. It won't be long. And once again, the right-wing lunatics will run the asylum. And they'll look less crazy because the left's so damn crazy. I said recently on an episode of Unloose the Goose, the only reason the right looks smart is because the left is so stupid. All of these people keep promising that they have your solution. They do not. No politician anywhere can fix your problems. No more than your neighbor can fix your problems. In fact, your neighbor can fix your problems more than a politician. If you have a plumbing leak and you don't know anything about plumbing and your neighbor does, they can actually come over to your house and fix your plumbing. They can do that. No politician could do that. No politician gives two shits about that. They don't even care when your house burns down in a giant fire that their bullshit caused. They claim to. They virtue signal, but they don't care. All this compassion and we care so much and we need the vaccines out and everybody needs to wear a mask and social distance and we're showing you and we're demonstrating. And just look at these two pictures that I just talked about in the last segment. It's all horseshit. And it's a damn joke to them. 
And you have a choice. Live in their world or create your own. Either you're completely screwed or all is well. It's your choice. And I really, really recommend you make the right one for you and your family. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you want to help support the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, I've got a great new product for you today. I've got some new stuff coming to tspaz. I've been doing a lot of you know, products I've recommended for years, recycling recently. And uh, this is a really interesting one that I have out for you today. It's a camping outdoor-type table. In fact, two different sizes. It's made by a company called Red Suricata. S-U-R-I-C-A-T-A is how you say the second word, Red Suricata. And these things fold down like, I don't know, like a big, like the, the smaller one, if you've ever seen one of those giant Hershey bars, it's about that big. And then it makes a nice little, you know, 16-inch table that's really, really sturdy, and it's made out of all aluminum. And it's just a fantastic, fantastic table. The way I found out about them, I actually, when I was in Florida recently, on the beach, I saw this really nice sun canopy. And so I went up and talked to people that had it. And they were like, yeah, we got it from Amazon. It was made of this company called Red Suricata and whatever. So I was checking into that at the same time. I was looking for kind of a nice, stable table to take with me when I go fishing, especially my more remote fishing, where you take my utility cart and I go you know, three-quarters of a mile back in the woods or whatever. And when I set up there on the bank, I want to be able to, like, you know, set a beer down, put a little, little cutting board on it, cut my bait, and have a nice, stable place for my stuff to go so it's not all in friggin' dirt. So I found this, and I was going to buy one. I ended up reaching out to the owner. He did provide me with them in exchange for the review. You guys know me. If it was crap, I would have sent it back. Um, if he had said no, I was still going to buy it. I was just like, maybe I can get it for free. So I, I did, and I did a great review for you, explained everything about them. I even have a, a, a great video to go along with this review. Um, it is not the product for everybody, but I think it's one of those products that, like, if you need this type of product, you're going to be like, this is great. And it is incredibly sturdy, and it is incredibly stable. Uh, it really has some ability to hold fairly heavy weight. You'll see me in the video with both of them, like leaning my full front body weight on them while I'm talking to you. Um, no, you're not going to put 200 pounds on them, but they're not that. I mean, what the hell are you going to put on a table this size anyway? Anything that you would put on them, they're going to hold. Check them out. At, again, the company is called Red Suricata, and right now, uh, I don't have a special deal or anything, but they're running a coupon on Amazon for 10% off both of them. So all you got to do is before you click checkout, tick the box. And look for that on Amazon all the time when you're using Amazon, by the way, through TSPAS or otherwise. A lot of times there's products, they have a coupon for, you know, but if you don't tick the box, you don't get it. So just be aware of that. And remember, whether it is this new table or anything that you buy, if you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you help us out no matter what it is. Uh, with that, let's go to our song of the day. I'm kind of jazzed this week. Uh, many of you guys know I have a guy named John Adam that does all my musical programming for me. Sometimes I don't really like his choices. I pick my own. Most of the time I just run uh, with the list as he gives it to me. We're doing Swamp Music Week this week. All music about swamps and things that are swamp-like. Today's song is Born on the Bayou by CCR. And I'm going to take a little bit different approach in introducing this one than I usually do. A lot of times I kind of look for meaning in the song or whatever. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about artistic freedom in the ego of people who don't understand artistic freedom and how backwards thinking some people can be. This song reminds me a lot of a song that sounds nothing like it, but in the way that people have criticized it. 
You know the song Country Roads, Take Me Home by John Denver? Like, he doesn't even live in West Virginia. He never been to West Virginia. Well, he didn't even write the song, man. Some people he knew wrote the song and kind of gave But anyway, um, much like that, John Fogarty, when he wrote this song, had never even seen a bayou. He grew up in Berkeley, California. Yeah, Berkeley. And he basically learned about bayous, saw some pictures of them or something like that, and he kind of got fascinated with it, and he kind of had this idea of what it would like to be, be, be like to grow up in a place like that. And that's where the song came from. And what amazes me is that people criticize that and an artist because the artist sings a song, and they only do it when the song's successful. Because people write books all the time about shit they never did. It's not like he said, you know, hey, guys, this is a song about the way I grew up and was lying to you. It's called being an artist. It's called having vision. It's called telling a story. You know, I'm pretty sure Brad Thor never fought KGB operatives. We don't hold a, a writer to that standard. Why would we hold musicians to it? I'll tell you what it all goes back to. People that do it. Remember I've talked about wealth? And you see somebody that has something that you would really like to have? There's two responses people have to that. Must be nice. Those people will never have those things. And good for them. Sometimes you just got to enjoy great music and understand that musicians tell stories. Sometimes they're biographical. And sometimes they're just stories from their minds. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Mm-hmm.